when I talk about Aldo leaving to go to his mother, his mother's funeral, and I was in bed and um, I was just sort of thinking about her. I turned the light out and I saw this white moth fluttering around and that's when I got the chills thinking about the fact that when eight years earlier, the day that we left the villa, she had said to me, if a white moth comes and visits after someone you love dies, it's their spirit uh, visiting. So I, I couldn't believe that this white moth was flying around that I just, and then I had that spark, that memory. And so that's how, that's how the title came about because it's kind of a, a tribute to her spirit. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Alterescu and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Today's guest, Camilla Calhoun, was introduced to me by Carol, who traveled with Camilla for an artist's retreat in Scotland this past September. The retreat was organized by Camilla's cousin and our friend, painter and printmaker, Kate McLaughlin, who I talked with on the podcast last year. Camilla is the author of The White Moth, a beautifully told, moving and loving memoir, both historical and very personal. Much of the story takes place on a 15th century farm villa in Tuscany during very challenging times in Italy from the 1930s to the 1970s. Wars, political upheaval, deprivation, fascism, occupation, and change of every kind. The book is very much a tribute to Camilla's rock of a mother-in-law, Alda Innocente Raffanelli. The tribute is offered in the form of Camilla's memoir, of what was intended to be a sojourn in Italy to pursue her passion for writing, her romance with and marriage to Alda's son, Aldo, and eventually a story of three generations at the villa. Aldo's grandparents, Elvira and Ugo, Aldo's parents, Alda and Floro, and finally, Aldo and Camilla, and also a number of beloved siblings, aunts, uncles, cousins, and children. Camilla explores the relationships between the men and women of each of the generations, not always a perfect picture, as is often the case, of course. And then, inevitably, this is Italy after all, there is the food. The tomatoes, the olives, the grapes, and the wine, the abundant fresh vegetables, the focaccia, I love the description of the focaccia, <laughs> and the meal preparation and the importance of having food on the table on time to feed hardworking men. This is the story of an era, several eras, and beautifully told. Camilla, welcome. I'm so pleased to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Howard. It's great to be here with you. I'm sure you have much to add to what I provided as a brief summary. Supplement what I've said, if you will, with an overview from your personal perspective. Well, thank you. You did actually a great job summarizing it. Um, I... Initially, this was a book uh, that I had intended as a tribute to my mother-in-law. And then just because it took me so long, uh, over the years, I, I decided um, that it really, I had to, someone actually said to me, you should tell your side of the story, um, including how you were connected to this Italian family. So um, that's sort of, sort of how it branched out into then three generations. Uh, and unintentionally, it sort of happened that the 
first generation, which is Elvira, and then Alda, and then my generation, you can just see this, the evolving roles of, of uh, women over the ages. And Elvira, who had a magnificent operatic voice, uh, was, you know, really only allowed to sing at home. And so I always love the story that uh, then my mother-in-law's uh, second daughter, Flora, she was, she called her Flora Elvira. She became an opera singer Wonderful. and sang really all, all throughout Europe and um, actually came here as an understudy at the Met. She never actually uh, sang at the Met, but she did meet uh, Luciano Pavarotti in the hallway and, and they were used to be friends and Anyway, she had a magnificent mezzo-soprano voice, so it was the idea of a voice transcending generations is something that always kind of moved me. Always, uh, and she she kind of inherited her her grandmother's voice. Yeah, that, that's wonderful. Al, you describe Alvira as a warm, loving woman who was taken for granted. Yes, and that, and I think that was kind of the times. Her husband Ugo who was a kind of short man, and she was about six foot tall almost, and, and the pictures of them, he looks like, you know, he's dwarfed in comparison to her physically, but she was definitely diminished as a person because um, I, I think that it comes across in the book how, oh, yes. how Ugo was kind of a, a sort of the bulldog patriarch, and he came up from you know living on his own leaving his family early and making enormous wealth um so he was a fighter and uh and really kind of dismissed his wife and had a little more respect for alda but my sister-in-law who is now is still alive she's the only one from um my husband's generation who's alive she always said that ugo was her grandfather uh she was he, his little princess, but that she never really warmed to him that much because she could just sense how he treated her mother and um, she never knew Elvira. But um, actually, Elvira died just basically in the, in the same day as as uh, Anna was born. So there's a lot of that in the book as well, the sort of um, the transitioning from life and death and Alda herself um when she was born her mother died in childbirth so it took a while but she um never knew her mother uh and i i sort of attribute her resilience to having you know grown up without a mother she grew up with her two aunts and her uncle but um i don't know she she struck me all the the only four years that i lived there with her at the villa as someone who had um suffered a lot of loss but um just had a strength and yet an optimism about her that uh, was so inspiring to me. And, and that's sort of what I wanted to celebrate when I wrote this book. And, and Ugo and Elvira, what, what years did you cover in the book? With um, actually, it starts um, in the 20s because um, Alda was born actually at the turn of the century uh, 1900, and and then um, I kind of briefly go over her early years when she when she was with her aunts and uncles and moved in with her father. Kind of, it was sort of a brief part of her life because then he left again. But 
so I have the young years a little bit. And 1918, actually 1918, we see her with her aunts uh, welcoming the the soldiers home from from the war, yeah. from the First World War. And there's kind of um, a little bit of a, a reference in the book to see how the soldiers were berated and and uh, spat upon and whatever, and that kind of part partially that sort of disdain for the the soldiers as if giving blame to the soldiers for the war um, is sort of sowed the seeds of this, almost the second you know yes, of fascism yes. and and because uh, Mussolini hit on that quite uh, uh, he was a veteran and he you know so he he got a lot of the veterans to be supportive of right. his move to rule. So, so before we get to Mussolini, yeah. which I wanted to ask you oh. about, so I reacted yes. so strongly to the way Elvira was treated. Right. And that was near the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, this is going to be a tough book. Am I, this was, I think, before I met you. Right. And I thought, right. am I even going to like this person? Yeah. Uh, Interesting, yeah. I also felt perhaps it was stereotypical right. of women of the era. And Elvira right. only yes, had yes, yes, males. Yes. She, right, it was yes. a whole male household. Right, right, right. And I think that was, um, yeah, stereotypical, but also actual. Um, you know, they were a very kind of um, difficult bunch of men, I think, for, you know, uh, to deal with. They, um, uh, especially the... Uh, the portrayal of Pietro, uh, who was, you know, wanted to be an academic, and he ended up working in his father's um, uh, fish importing business. And um, so, you know, Floro probably and Mario are the two more uh, sensitive and uh, sons who supported their mother. And and that's, you know, from all the interviews that I have, I I talked to Aldo's mother extensively, and and then also to his sister and to Aldo, although he was only seven when his father died. So there was a big gap there. And and so his sister is kind of, um, her recounting was, was really key. But you got the sense, you know, that Elvira had, uh, had her champions and two of her sons, but that her husband was just a very kind of difficult, you know, sort of, stereotypically patriarchal kind of yeah, yeah, figure yeah. and uh and then it, uh, it more so then when alda had her family and she was kind of a matriarch and much more kind of in charge it it's in the book i i try to um express that i thought of her as this sort of transitional generation where she was kind of in, in a way, she was making a lot of um, decisions and wouldn't settle for, like her husband was going out all, all yes. you know, every night to go to the fascist meetings. And she actually did devise that, that funny way of trying to get him to come back home, you know, by pretending she was going out. Yes, yes, that was very funny. That yeah, was funny. so that... You know, she had a sense she, of humor as well as, you know, cunning about her. Um, and uh, she was not at all a pushover. I just adored her. But um, uh, she was, you know, a strong character. And um, and that was the generation where, you know, you could see her sort of emerging and yeah. wanting more for her, her daughters, too, than what she had. Because I think she, she really would have loved to have been a lawyer or... Um, 
you know, sort of a surveyor. She was good at a lot of things, but um, she had gone to school to, to be a uh, school teacher and then ended up not finishing. So, um, because of the demands at home. Yeah. 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 Anyway, so, yeah, and then I, I came along, um, and it's there's a big contrast uh, in the 70s of this kind of blissful life that I had going there, you know, with the intention of, of writing and of participating in the, the villas, the agricultural efforts that were going on there with the, the vendemia, the grape harvest, and the olive harvest, and it was, you know, sort of a more blissful time, obviously. It sounded, it sounded blissful. <laughs> yeah. So I think that uh, the fact that my time there was included actually is is a little bit of a relief because uh, the other generations had a lot of hardship that, you know, that until we had to decide not to keep the villa and until like the Red Brigades came on the scene, it seemed like everything was just, you know, sort of the perfect idyllic yeah. Sort of uh, Tuscan villa time. So b before you know, we go more into that, let's, let's yeah. go back to what you were okay. saying about uh, Mussolini and fascism. You, uh -huh. you write that Floro felt he had to stand with Mussolini, who promised to restore order, respect, and prosperity after a war that left Italy in shambles. Mm -hmm. I think you introduced mm -hmm. it perfectly with the way the Italian soldiers who came home after World War I were treated. Mm -hmm. And Mussolini, mm -hmm. having been a soldier, stood yeah. up for them. Right. Uh, but what a difficult time. And the implications yeah. for Floro and the family mm -hmm. of this uh, difficult and consequential decision. Mm -hmm. Life-defining, really. Right. Oh, I mean, I, uh, Floro was, was uh, in his late teens when there was the March on Rome, I, which is what brought Mussolini in power. And, and I, I think he just was caught up in that wave of enthusiasm and sort of felt himself, you know, self-declared um, champion for his father's property. They were so worried about, um, you know, sort of the communism that was going to sort of take away private property and all of that. So I think there was this, you know, irrational fear perhaps, but um, uh, there was this... Um, the Matteotti situation, and they, the fascists ended up, um, he ended up getting killed, I think. And he was over in Russia for a while. But the, the idea was, um, you know, was not without some basis. They were, they yeah. were concerned yeah. that that was going to happen to Italy. So um, it's kind of, and then it just, as all bad regimes, it just, you know, degraded to everything. When, when they, declared war on France, I, I sort of wrote a scene around a famous phrase that Aldo's father said, and that was like, in regard to Mussolini, he's, he's going to ruin himself and he's going to ruin all of us, you know, with him. Um, so uh, I, I quote that in, in the book, which, you know, that there's a lot of what I wrote. It's kind of a creative nonfiction. I, I wasn't there to hear I, what I decided to do rather than do a whole narrative. I, I, um, I wanted to make the characters come alive. So I, I use dialogue that obviously not every word is. is sure. I mean, I had to make up a lot of dialogue. So, but it's all surrounding 
specific facts that I and I had heard about, and so I created the, you know, the situations. I, I tried in some cases. I did a little bit of um, uh, stealing from Michael Cunningham when, in the hours, he uses flowers to make transitions to, and I did it not throughout the book, but in in a different number of scenes, I was using white linen, for example, when um, when Alda. When the Americans come and occupy the villa, uh, she has to leave, and she looks out in the uh, in the garden, and all of the furniture that the Americans yes. had had put out there. She she imagines this white linen sheet, you know, hovering over the furniture to kind of protect it, and then um, that's the end of that scene. And then it, it, there's a scene of. Uh, me with Aldo under white linen sheets, the only really sexy scene in the so book. I, I, that's why I call it a personal <laughs> reflection. I did yes. have, that, it is, that, definitely. That's a very sexy it, scene. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I, I, I guess thank you. I mean, it is very personal. Yes, it is. But I, I, I think... Um, I only yeah. read it once, by the way. <laughs> oh, now I'm blushing. Um, but I think it's the whole idea was to... Um, sort of give a contrast to the kind of life that, that Alda had at those young, her young years and the kind of life I was living there with Aldo, which was this, you know, sort of um, free, you know, somewhat free and um, different um, sexual mores and different uh, everything, you know, sort of. So the, you know, the, the idea that here uh, she she was uh, had, was downstairs with her rosary, you know, <laughs> we were hoping that she didn't hear us upstairs. And what, what year about? Was um, that was uh, 1976, yeah. probably. Yeah. You, you uh, describe the fascism, Mussolini and the fascism in, in a way, as you said, it's understandable at the time. Right. And um, it's, it's a scary concept, and you know, we can think right. about it in today's environment, and right. uh, perhaps yeah. it's a warning. Yeah, it's. I actually called um, Brian Lair after Trump was uh, elected, and, and he was interviewing an Italian journalist uh, comparing Trump to Berlusconi, and I called in and I said I, my husband had, had died in, you know, five months earlier or, or so. And I said, I want to speak for him because he, you know, he was so, he's so worried about fascism in this country and having, you know, been a victim of, of serious victim of his father's demise and, and having lived it in Italy, he just was, you know, his, he was extremely uh, nervous, but he, he died before actually Trump uh, was elected. I think it, it might have killed him because, uh, you know, he he was already concerned. But the the, uh, the Italian journalist said, oh, no, you have so many checks and balances. I wouldn't worry about that. Anyway, to be continued on that yeah. will, remains to be seen. On a uh, lighter subject, yes. the decadent and huge Italian meals. Uh, there was, there were so I many know. meals where um, mm-hmm. perhaps a guest was so uh, satisfied with the food, and then more came out. Oh, uh, right. Mul- multiple right, right. Uh, courses, courses yes, of food, yes, yes. Uh, lush vegetation right. uh, available f- mm-hmm. fresh from mm-hmm. the villa. Uh, yes. My, my mouth was literally watering. It's away from the villa, the focaccia, uh, extraordinary. 
So the meals were extraordinary. The cooking was yeah, extraordinary. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Very usually, very few ingredients. Very simple, but the olive oil was always, you know, authentic right from there. Yep. It, a lot of local things, including, you know, I don't think I've ever tasted fruit like that in my entire life. You know, all the fruit, the cherries that came from right from the um, from the land that was was set. Uh, the villa's small, you know, small farm, but Still, uh, the fact that Aldo had this vegetable garden, so much was was right from there. So the taste was extraordinary. So she had a lot of great ingredients to use for her cooking, but um, she was um, just a very, she had a light touch, but uh, very flavorful, delicious meals, one after the other. <laughs> and she just never tired of it. She just loved feeding people, you know. So And she did. Yes, she, she did. did. So talk about the title of the book. Um, mm. you, you you say in the book, from if a white moth appears after someone dies, it's a spirit of that person coming to visit. Right. Um, well, that comes from uh, in the prologue uh, when I talk about um, Aldo leaving. We were living in Millwood, actually. Uh, leaving there to go to his mother, his mother's funeral, and I was in bed. This actually happened, and um, I was reading or looking some photographs of hers. The kids had already gone to sleep, and um, I was just sort of thinking about her. I felt badly that I couldn't go to the funeral, but um, it was just too, a little too complicated. So I was kind of reminiscing about her, and then um, I went to turned the light out and I saw this white moth fluttering around and that's when I got the chills thinking about the fact that what eight years earlier the day that we left the villa she had said to me a um, couple of things she had said if 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 I die although shouldn't come to my funeral and I was like no. what are you saying you know and then she also said if a white moth comes and visits after someone you love dies it's their spirit uh, visiting so I I couldn't believe that this white moth was flying around that I just and then I had that spark that memory and so that's how that's how the title came about because it's kind of a, a tribute to her spirit yeah um, well, and it, it's communicated so beautifully it, <laughs> it, it it's a, such a rich description of oh, your uh, of the family thank you and and in such a meaningful way. Thank you so uh, at, much. Well, you're welcome. At one point in the book, you discuss uh, the Italian government's appropriation of land, of land from Aldo's grandfather, mm -hmm. Ugo. Yes. Uh, and you refer to the New York State government's appropriation of land from your ancestors. Right. Yes. Uh, to build the Ashokan Reservoir in upstate right. New York mm -hmm. in order to satisfy the needs uh, need for right. water in New York City. Yes. You wrote an essay many years ago. Right. Uh, and now you're working on a novel. Is that right? Yes. Um our mutual friend and my cousin Kate had wanted me to work on the story, the sort of expand that essay and, and work on a story about the Ashokan and, and our, our ancestors. But I, I needed to um, start to work on something that I, uh, that gave me a little more freedom uh, of expression. So I had worked on, on this novel called Gubbio uh, actually I realized that I had started it somewhere like 2001. So it's been a long time. Things take me a long time to, to percolate, I guess. Um, but I had finished 
at least three or four drafts of it. So there were 400 pages and they were sitting upstairs for all this, you know, in my files. And I thought I really wanted to see if I could resurrect that story. And it has a lot of elements of um, sustainability elements or, or stewardship elements, which is sort of is close to my heart in terms of environmental sustainability. So, or, you know, concepts of, of people's, you know, the main character, the man is, he's a geologist and the wife is, uh, the woman is um, an ethnobotanist. So I'm trying to um, examine sort of the differences from kind of perspective point of view of people who study certain things and, and they have very different responses to their daughter who who actually falls from Breakneck Ridge um, here in the Hudson Valley uh, and goes into a coma. So the, most of the book is kind of the reaction to that event happening in their lives. And the connection um, to the Ashokan Reservoir? Uh, actually, there's no connection, no connection because I'm I'm not working on that. I'm working on this novel now, uh. and I'll have to, you know, get it done fast so that I can get to the Ashokan story. <laughs> Got it. Uh, okay. What, what, what else would you like to relate about The White Moth? As I was writing it, I was doing it for um, more or less for my family, but I kind of had an idea that that other people might be interested in in this, you know, from the Italian point of view, there's not a whole lot like from personal familial point of view, of like what happened through the war, etc. So I, I just um, want to say that I'm very um, moved and excited about people's response because I had no idea. I'm just very um, grateful. That's wonderful. My <laughs> Son Ben and his wife Eden and Eden's family are going to uh, Italy, mm -hmm. which is where Eden's family is from. Oh, wow. And uh, the, at the end of the summer, and I've told them about the book, and they are very excited to read the book. Oh, great! In anticipation of the trip, and I think they can be in Tuscany. Oh, great! That's wonderful. Thank you. Well, well thank you very much. This has been oh, wonderful. Howard, thank you so much. You're welcome. Follow us on our website www.bookwormsinthewild.com and on Instagram and Twitter at bookwormsitw and on Facebook at Bookworms in the Wild. And message me to tell me what you're reading or email me at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. More information about our guest today can be found on our website, which also includes links to the books and other resources we refer to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, and my bookmark. Melanie, as always, is in control of most everything and has provided overall creative direction. Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support. And of course, Carol is my muse. Nine-month-old Jake continues to encourage the podcast and is on the verge of being a full-fledged crawler he might actually walk first, which will liberate him and frighten his parents, or at least his grandparents. The entire wolf pack is also responsible for introducing me to most of our guests, including today. Thanks to the great Anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. Thanks as well to AJ Filari, who is working on the editing with me. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe, and in any event, let me have your comments, either directly on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time.